Hi there, and welcome back to Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we have a very special episode for you all. When we look back at our library of 400 plus past episodes, two of our more popular stories have a common thread. They both feature the Walling surname. Back in 2020, John interviewed Rob Walling about the sale of his company, Drip. And I'll link up to the Drip story in the show notes for you over at builttosell.com. Then earlier this year, we had Rob's wife on, Dr. Sherry Walling. And Dr. Walling is a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with entrepreneurs and helps founders navigate the emotional impact of an exit. So we were curious. How has Rob navigated his life after exiting Drip? What lessons can we take from Rob's experience reimagining a new life after an exit that left him with the choice, not a requirement, to work? But before we dive in, you'll hear Rob's reference to something called a founder's retreat, which involves a solitary excursion designed to reveal the essentials of who you are and what brings you happiness. And if you're curious I've listed 18 questions to ask yourself on a founder's retreat. Just go to Rob's episode page, which again, you can find over at builttosell.com. There you'll also get links to all the resources referenced in today's episode, including Sherry's book, The Zen Founder Guide to Founder Retreats. Without further ado, here's Rob and John on how to create your life after an exit. Enjoy. Rob Welling, welcome back to Built the Cell Radio. It is great to be here, John. Thank you for inviting me. You are one of my favorite episodes of Built the Cell Radio, so I want everybody to go back and listen to it if they haven't done so. But you're also one of my mentors and North Stars when it comes to uh, life after an exit. And that's really why I wanted to have you back. Because when I look at all of the stuff you've got going on, the new book, the microconf, tidy seat, all the stuff, I just think this is a guy who's charged up, dialed in, and he probably doesn't need to work. So I want to get underneath that because we've got a lot of listeners who uh, will go through an exit. They're going to, you know, they're, they're at the beginning stages of, of maybe a six, seven, eight figure exit, and they'll have to deal with some of these questions. So I'd love to sort of dig in with you. So thanks for doing this. Tell me a little bit about Drip. I know for folks who haven't listened to the episode, many have, but if, if they didn't listen to it, describe the business and the exit just you know, in, in a succinct fashion if you can. Sure. Yeah. So we um, launched Drip in 2013. I launched it with a co-founder. It's a SaaS app. Basically started kind of wound up being a competitor to like a MailChimp or an Infusionsoft. So an email service provider with marketing automation built in. Uh, we bootstrapped it up to about 10 employees, few million in revenue, and then sold it in an all-cash transaction um, to a company called Lead Pages, which some of your audience may have heard of. Um, sure. And later, I like to joke that Drip that we kind of acquired Lead Pages because what what actually happened is um, they bought Drip, and then they realized, oh, the land Lead Pages landing pages landing page market isn't huge. It's 100 million, 200 million, and then venture, they had raised a bunch of venture, right? So that's not that big of a market. The, the marketing automation, email service provider market, billions and billions and billions. And so they actually reorganized the whole company around Drip and they later sold lead pages as a product off. So <laughs> in essence, now 
the team, the whole, all the VC, everything is actually behind Drip in a very odd turn of uh, turn of events. But I was able to exit for enough money that I didn't I didn't have to work again, and that obviously created an interesting uh, paradox of choice because then you have to well should I work? What should I work on? I can work on anything, mm-hmm. so I don't want to do stuff that's too. I don't want to do something I don't want to enjoy, you know, I don't enjoy, but also aren't, and isn't anything worth doing maybe a little hard and something you don't enjoy at times. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe we'll dig into some of that during the yeah, conversation. Yeah, for sure. What's it like for you to see drip in the wild today? It, it is, it is surreal because, you know, it's a, it's a product now with tens of thousands of users. And as I said, when we sold, we were a team of 10. And by the time I, I stuck around for a little under two years and, and worked there, ran product and engineering. And when, by the time I left, we were doing tens of millions in revenue and employees, 125 maybe. And I was managing at a team of 25 people. So it was just mind boggling to me that, you know, how quickly it, it got there. And I still use it on a day-to-day basis. And I think, man, I love this product. They, I will admit, you know, since I'm a product person, right? I build software. They've done some things that irritate me, and I'm like, why did they change this? You know, this part of it, uh, you know, doesn't work the way I want it to. But it is, it is really neat to hear people will not know my name, and they've never heard of Microconfort Tiny Seed, but someone will say, oh, he's the founder of Drip, and they're like, oh, I love Drip. That's incredible. Like that is weird to me that like the Drip brand in in some circles is far be far beyond my own. Do you ever think mm, maybe I sold too early? Not usually, but when someone asks me, I always think. Did I sell too early? Because certainly it could have sold for more a year later or two years later, right? It was growing. I mean, at the time I sold, it doubled. It doubled that year. We were going to double again. So, and it was in the you know seven figures of revenue already. So, I, I'm not a big regrets person unless I make a bad choice or I make an if I make an emotional choice that I didn't think through very well. Then later, I will say I wished I'd chosen differently. But John, from the first email to the sale was 13 months. I had a lot of time to think about every aspect of the sale. And I had a, I had a bottom line number that I would not sell for below that. Because again, it was like, if I sell this, I need to have the flexibility to not have to go again. And we hit that number. I didn't have to stick around for... I stuck around longer than my earnout because I would... You know what I mean? It's like... So I don't have any regrets. Sometimes I do wonder, I could, have, I could certainly have a little more money, you know? It'd be nice to fly private sometimes, but I know. <laughs> but it's like, could I could I have lasted another year? Because I was pretty burned out, man. I mean, I've been kind of public about this, but like, I it was a rough go the last 12, 18 months. I wasn't uh, managing my mental health very well, and I don't, I don't know. Other things would have been impacted. Like maybe I could have sold for two or three times more, and maybe I would be divorced. Like that's honestly a very real could have happened. So. I try to think of it in that in that respect of like it's it's all about trade-offs. How is it impacting your marriage? How was it? Um I was it, pressure cooker, stressed, burned out. I in retrospect, so I never think oh I shouldn't have sold. What I actually think is I should have I should have justified to myself to hire an operations person. I should have hired one fewer developers and taken a huge swath of a bunch of stuff I didn't like off of my plate because I was still doing, I was trying to keep the developers moving forward. I was trying to keep sales and customer success and support. So I didn't bother anyone with anything. And I did all the grunt work. And I put, since we were bootstrapped, like we were cash strapped as it sounds, Hey, great. Seven figures. This is we're doubling. 
we had like barely any money in the bank. And so I was stressed about making payroll. I was stressed about all this crap on my Trello board that I didn't want to do. And now that I've had distance from it, you know, when you're burned out, you like your sense of reality is actually distorted. Mm. And people would tell me, I have friends, I have a wife who's a, who's a, you know, a, a psychologist and a founder. We've had her on the show. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she would say like, figure out how to do this and that. And I would say, oh, it's just not possible. I would just, I would say things that now that I look back and I'm like, what was I doing? You know, I was, my, my thinking was clouded with this kind of burnout slash, it wasn't technically depression. I'm not uh, someone who naturally is depressed, but it, there was, it was a grind that I could have handled better. And I think that if I have regrets, um, are, you know, are, are things that uh, those are the types of things I regret. You asked me how it impacted my marriage. It just made me crappy to be around. I was in a bad mood all the time. I was grumpy at night. I was, my wife would say, hey, can you take the kids to this and that? And it's like, I don't have time. I got to work. I got to work another few hours to get this stuff done, right? I was, I was not an, the enjoyable um, conversationalist that you know me to be. I was a grumpy ass person who was just kind of mad all the time. And that definitely doesn't make for a great marriage. How did you figure out your number? I worked backwards um, from... I looked at the 4% rule and I don't, I don't think the 4% rule is enough. I, I'm guessing your audience knows that. I kind of started thinking more about the 3% rule because I had heard some folks you know, say that uh, even, at, even in the worst times, like 3% will get you. And that's where you can draw 3% of your cash balance each year and never run out of money. And so I said, I want a healthy income. So I'm going to multiply that number by 33.3. And uh, I want that much cash at the end. So then you have to back out taxes. And you know, I had a, a co-founder who's a minority stake, but still you had to back that out and whatever, legal fees and, and other stuff. And, and then I put in, a, of course, a margin of error because I like to have that. Nice, nice. And when you thought about your lifestyle, uh, like were you kind of budgeting in big upgrades to your lifestyle? Or was it like, if I just want to live this life that I've, built today, what do I need? It wasn't huge upgrades. I'm actually, this may, this may be something I would do a little differently. I was not budgeting in big upgrades. I was certainly, I mean, I was already making low six figures and figured, you know, I would want to make that or more each year. So it's a healthy, we were in California at the time, now we're in Minneapolis, but it was a healthy, healthy income. And, you know, we have a nice house and nice cars. I didn't build in anything of like, I want to make half a million dollars. I, I don't want my three, you know, I want my 3% to be half a million dollars a year. Like that wasn't something that I had grown up with or thought about. Um, since then, I, I actually, what was interesting is in selling Drip and then taking the cash balance, I remember thinking, well, that's it. That's the nest egg. And I have it for the rest of my life. I did make some strategic bets and I got in on crypto in 2016. So made a good chunk of money there. And then some other stuff with collectibles and, and the stock market. and. Now I have quite a bit more than the exit amount. Um, and I realized that that while it doesn't make a difference in my day-to-day -day life, it did allow us to say up like our to get a better an, a really nice house by a lake that is um quite a bit more expensive than say the, you know, we, we lived in a four hundred thousand dollar house in Fresno, for example, when when we moved out. And the house we live in today is, you know, several times that amount. And I didn't really think that that would be an option or a, or a desire, but it turns out at a certain point, it, it, um, I think it, it did actually improve our quality of life pretty substantially to have a larger house. We had several kids at the time. So 
Sounds like um, like I've never flown private, but but it sounds like the the kind of idea like once you fly private, you're screwed. Yeah, you'll never, you'll never go back. Like yeah. you're you're taking one step up the lifestyle ladder, you'll never actually want to step off of again. Yeah, a luxury uh, once there's there's that phrase a luxury once sampled becomes a necessity. I think uh, I think it's a that's a terrible I know. accurate but terrible. I think it's a stoic like a stoic saying, but I'm always yeah, yeah. pretty careful with that stuff because it's like oh my eyes oh, I can go on Zillow today and be like oh my gosh these houses are are right are so much bigger than mine maybe we should aspire to do that and it's like no let's let's tone it down. Yeah yeah. What was the time after you sold during the earnout? Uh, what was that time like? Just qualitatively, mm-hmm. what words would you use to describe it? So the acquirer, they were great and they honored all the verbal stuff that, you know, there's certain things you can't put in a contract and they honored all of that. Um, So that experience overall, I would say was good from their side. I was still, I was very stressed because I was like trying to protect my team. My team was of course stressed around things and I felt, I took on a lot of emotional burden. I maybe shouldn't have, but I felt very protective of them. And as a result was like always triggered. Like, oh my gosh, someone, my team's upset at XYZ thing that just happened. And somehow that's my, that's my fault because I sold the company. That, that's what I kept doing. So I eventually let that go, but I, it was, um, the transition time was hard and not because of the acquirer, if that makes sense. It's because yep. I overthought a lot of things and I frankly was still burned out. Like it took me, I think it wasn't until after I left and then I took six months totally off that eventually undid my burnout. It probably got better. It got better once I sold because then I didn't have to do all the operations, right? I handed off all the stuff to the acquirer, but um, I definitely still felt that, that sense of stress, that existential dread for quite a while, even post-acquisition. Hmm. So it didn't just flip off when you cashed the check. It, no, it was a bit of a hangover. Yeah, the check. Exactly. That's a good way to describe it. The check helped, though. I will admit, because then I could just breathe easy and say, no matter what happens here, uh, it's like the re- my life is set. Like it. That was a very um, for me as someone who grew up where money was an issue at the, at home, and I was always constantly in a scarcity mindset around money. Having that amount in the bank for me was was a huge relief. Um, but day to day, still grinding on the job was was not the best. How did it impact when the, when the check cleared? How did it impact your relationship with your wife? Hmm. I'm going to ask her later. So yeah, <laughs> we've had totally. for, folks who, for folks who don't know, Rob's uh, wife is Dr. Sherry Walling, who we interviewed probably three months ago about some of the psychological impact of entrepreneurship and in particular exiting. It's a great episode. One of our actually most popular. I think she actually beat you, Rob. Oh, I got to tell you what I, I bet. She always does. She's always <laughs> the bigger girl. <laughs> I'm teasing. But anyways, it's a great episode. People should listen. But that's why I'm asking. Is yeah. She's, uh, she's obviously very informed as it relates mm-hmm. to the stuff, but you're also in a relationship together. I just yep. be curious to know how it impacts it. It took a while to to heal. Like again, sure. I I yeah. had damaged the relationship with how I was. Right, I was closed off and was not, you know, for a year. I I was stressed about money. There was a there was a point where there was a big tax bill in 2014, and I was stressed about that for six months. Where I was like, how am I going to pay this thing? And then 2015 was hard for other reasons. And then I started burning out. You know, it just was this long sequence of this very extended hmm. like unhappiness. And when you're around someone and, and involved with someone who's that unhappy, like I was, it doesn't go away overnight. 
And while the money was a big thing for me to feel comfortable with, and certainly Sherry was like, oh, that's great. It didn't solve all that overnight, you know? Hmm. And it took me, I mean, we recorded a podcast episode within the month after the acquisition talking about how that was. And I could, I could feel it in her that she was, she was like rightfully angry, you know, and rightfully still kind of like, is this going to get better or did drip ruin you for life? You know, cause, cause I was a different, you become a different person, right? When you, when you're in that mindset, that negative mindset. And then over the next year or two, so again, it, it was a hangover. It wasn't a, a slight switch. And the money meant a lot less to her than it did to me. Cause to me, it, me, it meant a kind of safety, I think, and a, and a cushion for life. And for her, I think it meant, well, Drip's gone. Now maybe he'll be sane again. Hmm. Have you always thought of yourself as sort of the provider for your family? There's sort of a, um, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a stereotype type, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, a, it's a male stereotype and, and, and it's, you know, it's a very uncomfortable, unpopular thing to say, mm-hmm. but men, particularly young men are still socialized to this day to say, Hey, you got to be the provider for your family. You got to make sure you take care of everybody. Was that a message that you heard as a kid? And, and how did that impact you in this whole thing? I heard it a little bit, but frankly, Sherry and I have always viewed each other as as equals. We very much co-parented and we both went to the same university, got four-year degrees, and then I stopped at bachelor's and she got a PhD. So I, I was always like, hey, make as much money as you can. <laughs> if you can provide for me, that's great. We, But what happened is I was an engineer, then I was a startup founder. And at different times, she was like, when I was, I was an engineer making almost $200,000 a year as a consultant and Sherry was an intern. She was doing her internship for her PhD, making 30 grand. So it wasn't that I felt like I had to provide, but it, it, the realities was I did have to during those years, right? That was, that was 2008-9. And then as she, um, I guess as Drip you know, evolved. And I, I frankly had a lot of different projects going on. I was making substantially more money than her. And while I didn't feel like I had to, I guess, I guess it, I, I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, if, if either of us is going to sell something for enough money, we never have to work again, it's probably going to be me because I'm on that trajectory, you know? And she was a, at the time, just a, not just, but she was a clinical psychologist um, working for a salary. And so I knew that that would never come. Now, the interesting thing is these days, she makes more than I do. And I'm totally fine with that. And so, you know, that we've, we've kind of had this switch where I'm not optimizing for income right now, to be honest, right? I'm playing more long-term games with, with Tiny Seed. Um, whereas she has this amazing business that is now, you know, doing much better. Awesome. Let's switch gears to talk a little bit about the period after you left Drip totally. So you sold, you did your two-year earnout, you're totally out. What was that like for the first couple of weeks when you no longer had a nine to five job to go to? Some of my favorite weeks of my entire life. It was so, so much relief. Much like right when we sold, check hit the bank. I remember next couple of weeks, huge relief, but then the stress kind of built back up as it's like, well, I got to go to a job now and people are reporting to, you know, I'm still working. Leaving in, it was April of 2018 was like huge weight lifted off my shoulder. And I could instantly feel um, that I was going to do something. I knew I was going to do something interesting in the future. I didn't know what, but 
I savored those moments. And I, I still tell entrepreneurs today, if you sell a company for any substantial amount, take a minimum of three months off. And if you don't have to work, try to take six months off, which is very hard. I mean, I think in a perfect world, it would be a year, honestly, but no one, none of us do that. All right. I took six months off and then I started working. Oh, you said you took six months? Yeah. What'd you do? I did a lot of thinking about what I wanted out of the next act of my life. Because I feel like this was the third act. Like my first act was being a developer and turning into an entrepreneur and eventually, you know, making enough money that I could work for myself, 100, 100 grand, 150 grand a year. Second act was really ramping up drip, selling that. And the third act is well, what's next? You know, what do I do for the next 10, 15, 20 years? So I did a lot of- Do you mind if I ask how old you were at the time? Yeah, in 20- yeah, when I left. When you left Drip, yeah. yeah. When, the, the, the moment you're describing where you took six months off. Yeah, like 43, early okay. 40s. Yeah, 42, 43. Yeah. And so plenty of time. <laughs> I'm not going to retire. I mean, none of us, none of your listeners are going to retire either, right? I think a lot of us are going to work for, for, because I don't view work, I view work as something that brings me, I've always done, gravitated towards what I enjoy, you know, and what's creative. And so my podcast and, and my events and stuff, I'll do those until I can't do them anymore. And so mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time thinking, though, about what I wanted this next act to be. And you know, something we haven't talked about is, in addition to software companies, I also had started what is like the most popular podcast around bootstrapping software companies, bootstrapping SaaS. It's called Startup for the Rest of Us. Started that in 2010. So I was already eight years into that. And then started MicroConf, which is now an online community, but it was in-person events at the time. And I was a little burned out on everything. I was just burned out on life, right? But that made me think, should, should I just step away from startups altogether? Because that, that was part of my personal brand, right? I'm the guy that helps teach people how to start startups and build SaaS companies. And we actually got around this time, I think it was a little earlier than this, but we got a cash offer to sell my, it was a seven-figure offer to sell MicroComp. And I was really leaning towards doing it. Like MicroConf, for folks who don't know that name, is a conference for startup founders, in particular SaaS founders, to come together to learn from one another. Correct. Is that right? Yep. You've got speakers, and so people yep. have been to those kinds of events. Yeah, there's events, okay. and then we have an online community, like a Slack channel, and we have education and mastermind matching on the whole, whole deal. Oh, okay, and just to be, to be clear, you are running these in parallel <laughs> with Drip. Is that correct? Yes, that's okay. right. And MicroConf at the time, was a, it was a side project, really, like the Startups for the rest of us, the podcast and microcomp were hobbies. And I did them nights and weekends. And then Drip was the full time, the day job. And no wonder you were burned out, man. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, in 2020 hindsight, now microconf and Tiny Seed are my full time job. And I think, how was I, how was I, do, how was I doing that with young kids? You know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I am, fr- I'm somehow, sometimes frustrated with my own lack of, uh, of, of personal insight, I think. But I, so I took that six months to figure out what do I want to do next and really considered just selling everything, get, shutting the podcast down and, and actually started a negotiation with the, the second largest website for um, tabletop games, like board games, because that's a hobby of mine. And I was thinking, maybe this is my next act is to go to conferences and start a YouTube channel and become a gaming influencer. And I was seriously considering doing that. Wow. So you're going to, so on the table, you've got, Starts with the rest of us as a podcast. You've got MicroConf, which is th- those two were a bit of a hobby. 
Um, you sold drip. You've got six months. You're you're kind of contemplating the world, and the the tabletop gaming uh, is something you've always had a passion for. Mm -hmm. You were thinking about buying a company in mm -hmm. that space. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just a website because I was going to build it from scratch, and then it's like, why why do that? Now you don't start over <laughs> once you have this these resources, you know. And so. You, one of the options, door number one was, I'm going to sell it all. I'm going to sell microcomp, and then I'm going to do the gaming thing. Mm -hmm. What were door number two and three? Door number two was um, to double down on microcomp and the podcast. Because it's something that I had basically done mostly for free, break even, a little, little bit of profit, over the course of the last almost decade. And so that was definitely still an option, right? To go deep in that. I'd never worked full time or focused on it or built it out. And then door number three would have been um, find, find a third option, right? There was really no concrete option. I knew I, I'd started saying in like 2014, 15, like I'm never going to start another SaaS app specifically. Like I'll start another company, but I'm not going to start another startup, like a SaaS startup. And the reason was, was I felt like I'd kind of learned, I'd, I, I'd learned what I came to learn. So for me, like happiness comes from creating and learning. And by the time we had 10 employees, I was like, now I'm just kind of doing the same thing. The growth is, the engine's there. I'm going to go from 10 to 20 to 30 people. And then we got acquired and we went to, you know, again, tens of millions in revenue, 125 people. And by the time I got there, I was like, no, no, no. I really don't want to do any of this. Like this is not in my wheelhouse, nor do I care about it. And although we were having a crazy impact, like amazing accomplishments, crazy impact on our customers and everybody in, in that space, it lost interest for me. And so it was option three, door number three was never to start another SaaS app just because I, I, came, I learned what I came to learn and I wanted a new challenge. But what about learning guitar or mm. traveling to Europe or learning how to yeah. jujitsu or something, but like, that's not work. Yeah. What, what, I don't, I'm not seeing the, the option that yeah. was put your feet up, head to the beach. Cause that's the image that we all have. In sure. Our minds. Sure. It's on the front of the book. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the idea is that, well, once you sell your business, you can put your feet yeah. up and relax. So what there, so it's interesting that, ne that never once occurred to me as something I would do. And here's why. So in 2010, we had our second child and I took almost 10 months off, almost completely off. I had these, a bunch of small businesses that generated, like I said, hundred between hundred, 200 grand a year, plenty of money to live in California and Fresno. And I worked the four hour work week, almost literally, like it was like 10 hours a week, maybe. And it was fun. It kept me busy. And I got re, so I had a retirement of sorts and I got really, really bored and really unhappy with that boredom because I wasn't learning and I wasn't creating. And so after I sold Drip and I knew that I was going to have infinite time to do what I wanted, I always knew that I would create and I would want to learn from whatever I was creating. So I had learned that lesson perhaps earlier than most because I'd had that glimpse into my personality, right? In 2010. And I think anyone who thinks that they've, you know, if they've been an ambitious entrepreneur for years and thinks that they're going to do nothing, I, unless you're, Maybe if I was like 70 years old and I was going to go hang out with grandkids or something, maybe. But any of us who are, you know, in our age range, I, I just don't think that's the way it happens anymore, especially with tech. Like I know folks who've sold the company and they're like, I'm semi-retired. And then they go start a, start a podcast. And then that podcast, because it's an interest of theirs. And then it gains 
interest. And then they're like, well, I might as well just start selling eBooks on this thing. And pretty soon they've become knowledge marketers, you know, people who have started mm. a small side business that turns into a, a nice thing. I don't think of that as work, even though technically it is, but it's still something that is like, um, so it, we have a luxury of doing that today versus past generations. Like my dad, for instance, did not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you do differently about that six months? If you had a mulligan, mm. you could do it totally over again. What would you do differently? That's a really good question. And to be honest, I can't think of anything I would change. And I know that's a weird cop-out answer, but here's why. Going into it, I knew that I was leaving and I was heading into it. I said, I, do, I will not have regrets about this time of my life. And so I, my brother gave me a, a year-long subscription to Masterclass, right? Masterclass.com. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. I did. What's funny is you mentioned playing guitar. I used to play guitar. I used to play in bands. So I started playing guitar again, just on my own. Um, I you know, watched all, a bunch of masterclasses. I um, upped my chess playing. I started playing chess a little bit. I started writing code again. I hadn't written code since 2014. I really enjoy that. I've always done it as I learned when I was eight. It's like a hobby thing of mine. So I started coding again. I got into stock market investing. These are all hobby things that I actually embraced pretty heavily. I didn't do any work for that six months. And I just gave the universe space to figure out where I was going to go next. And I really, the only thing I, maybe if I were to do anything is it would have been nice for it to be nine months. It was six months and then I started six. Yep. Not enough. How did you know it was time to get back at the game? It's a really good question, actually. So what happened was I was weighing this, like this microconf startup ecosystem, personal brand thing, tabletop gaming, other options. And someone approached me. It was a friend of mine who I knew from the microconf community. His name's Anar Volset. And he said, he had listened to one of my microconf talks and said, you know, you're, you've been mentoring entrepreneurs for a decade and you've done some investments. I'd written some angel checks. Um, he said, have you, start, have you thought of starting a fund to invest in bootstrap startups? And other people had asked me this over the years and it was always like, I don't have time. I don't have interest. I'm busy with other things. You know, I don't know. Is there a need? You know, all these questions. But this was coming right at this culmination where funding for kind of indie.bc is, is a kind of indie funding, they call it. And um, this stuff was becoming a lot more palatable to bootstrappers. Like funding has, is losing its stigma. And I saw a real need in the space of bootstrappers to have funding to take it off hard mode. And... Um, that was where I started thinking, okay, we, we could do this now. We, could, we kind of slow rolled it for a while, but it quickly became, I, I almost saw this ecosystem in my head of the podcast and MicroConf and this funding wing of MicroConf suddenly became very appealing to me. And I thought, wow, that, A, that would be super creative because it's a new thing to work on. And I bet I would learn a ton. You know, you hear these, these are my things, right? Creativity and learning. Creativity I, and learning. Yeah, I yeah. started becoming like really entranced with the idea of building something new that also helped entrepreneurs. And I realized that that had really been my mission for like 15 years, you know, or I guess it was about 12 years at that point. But it's like, I love creating and learning, but I also like interacting with entrepreneurs. And it suddenly, um, as I realized that the board game space, oh, John, the economics of that space are so, so bad. The, oh, really? Oh, terrible. 
I could have acquired that website for not very much money, but I mean, the revenue he was doing was just, it was just not good, you know, and there was no profit. And I suddenly I realized like, oh, there's a reason that like, that we're in the tech space, you know, or we're in certain yeah. spaces like the, the economics are just really bad. So I started thinking, do I want to leave this? What is one of the best business models in the world, <laughs> SAF? And do I want to go into a space that is, yeah, I, I think would wind up being a grind, you know, it would have been a short-term decision. And yeah, so- yeah, yeah, for sure. So for folks who may have not have heard of MicroConf, this is where you and in our invest in companies and you've raised tiny, a fund. Tiny so I'm saying tiny, tiny, tiny. Yep. You, you've raised a fund of people who want to invest in startups. So it's not only your money, but other people's money that Correct. you're investing. And, and those checks are 25 grand, that kind of thing. Or what's the, the yeah, average? The, yeah. The, the average check between 120 and two, about 220, 250. Perfect. Okay. 250,000. Yeah. The bigger checks. Okay. Accelerator size checks. We've raised three funds, $42 million total to invest in about 200 and you know, five, 210 startups across, and it's around the world. We invest in Europe and Middle East, and uh, there's a focus on the U.S. Americas, but we have a Europe fund as well. So this, what you envision, the kind of, again, MicroConf, the, the Startups for the Rest of this podcast, feeding into Tiny C, these three things kind of coagulating or triangulating <laughs> together, it's it, it sort of come to fruition, that vision you had. Yeah. And in a way that it sounds so obvious in retrospect when we say, well, obviously startups for the rest of us is aimed at bootstrap founders and microconf has always served bootstrap founders with in-person events, online events. And now tiny seed is going to invest in bootstrap. It's an ecosystem. This is, this makes perfect sense now that it's here. It wasn't that clear to me in 2018. I, I didn't realize they would all be so complimentary. And the moment, and then I did. <laughs> and the moment that I did, I realized, oh my gosh, like, my, I think my long-term mission in life, when I finally made this decision, what, what I actually did was I went on a founder retreat. I said, okay, so I went, I went away for 48 hours uh, to a cabin. It was three days, but two nights and three days and no kids, no wife. And I just thought about things and I asked myself a lot of questions. Sherry, my wife has actually written a book called The Zen Founder Guide to Founder Retreats. And it is filled with a list of questions to ask yourself and to, to ruminate on and to think about in quiet, uh, almost meditation in essence. And so I didn't listen to podcasts as I normally do, didn't listen to books. And I just thought and asked, kind of thought through all these questions. What have I loved doing my whole life? What have I not? What do I want this next act to look like? What do I not want to do? And as I got towards the end of that two days, I realized what I've been doing for free for a hobby for you know 12 14 years was trying to help was was doing my own entrepreneurial things and fulfilling my desires to be creative and learn but it was also helping other entrepreneurs succeed and that brings me a ton of joy and so that's when i realized oh tiny seed is just the next step of that like i could still do microconf and i could keep the podcast and tiny seed is just rounds out that ecosystem and that's where i started to, that's when i started getting really excited about oh i could do this now for 10, 20 years versus every SaaS app I always launched, I was like, could I, do I want to run this for 10 or 20 years? That doesn't sound that fun. But when I think of Tiny Seed MicroConf started for the rest of us, I'd already done two of those things for almost a decade. I could certainly see doing them for another decade. And Tiny Seed is, you know, in that same, that same ecosystem, as I've said. I'm a fan of startups for the rest of us. Everybody should listen. If they don't, they should. Probably three months ago, you were 
transparent with your audience saying that you were feeling burnt out and that you wanted to, to kind of take uh, some time away and, and kind of refocus and so forth. It sounds like things had gone a little bit full circle from the drip days mm. where, you know, the obsession of the, and, the, and the stress of it had gotten you kind of down. Now you've, re, you, you know, as you say, Tiny Seed's a big entity. Uh, Microconf's a big business unto itself. The mm -hmm. podcast continues to roll. Have you made the same mistake? In essence, mm -hmm. you've got all the money in the bank, but now you're kind of stressed out again? Like, it, did, did, did everything come full circle or am I, am I not hearing you correct? It's such a good distinction, and I'm glad you asked the question that way. The, the short answer is no, it is not. I don't feel at all the same way that I did back in the drip days. It is very, very different. And in fact, when I went on the podcast and recorded that, I, was at, I wasn't burned out yet. I could see it on the horizon. That's, what, that's the difference this time is I saw it months in advance. And I started saying, okay, what exactly is it that's burning me out? And how do I help that? And for me, it's the grind of... Um, content production. So the company's actually, I'll tell you what we did differently this time that I've never done is we raised funding. And I've always bootstrapped and I was always I'm bootstrapping. It's hard mode, man. It is hard mode. I could never hire operations people because I was always putting, you know, as I've already said, I was always putting money yep. in, making money. Once we raised money, it was like, oh, like our third hire was a director of operations who just does everything we don't want to do. And that makes my job is exactly what I want to be doing. Like every day when I wake up, I'm like, well, I totally want to go record this podcast. And I absolutely mm. want to record this YouTube video. Like I have crafted the perfect job and I have the luxury of that because we've raised funding. So any business I ever start from now on, I'm going to start with some type of funding so that I, I can do that. As a result, uh, and from the experience of being burned out prior, I definitely saw it coming and I'm already through it. That was a couple mm. months ago. I did a couple things. One, I took you know, went to Costa Rica for two weeks with my family. Um, also just took some time off right when I realized that I just took a week off, stayed at the house. Didn't work almost at all. And I realized the content production was grinding on me. So I recorded an entire month of content in advance in like two days. And that was hmm. hard. But then I took a month off from content. And then I did it again. So I bait in another two days and took a month off. So for me, I, again, it's a luxury of being able to do that. Not every job allows drip. I couldn't have done that with drip because it was a different job. But sure. I basically headed it off at the pass before it got to me, which I, I think comes from experience and from making the big mistake the first time. Mm -hmm. I wrote a blog post, gosh, years ago now, must have more than 10 years ago now. Uh, called life in ten year chunks, and it was mm -hmm. it was after I'd sold my last company, and mm -hmm. I and I was making the case that one of the amazing luxuries of selling a company or choosing a career in entrepreneurship, I should say, is that you don't have a career ladder to uh, adhere to. Unlike becoming a lawyer or going to work at Microsoft, where you you sort of have to stay in the game, mm -hmm. you can do as you just have done, which is the six month sabbatical. And you kind of can control your time. If I'm doing my math right, it was 2018 that you had this sort of six months. So do you see another sabbatical in 2028 when hmm. you're like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably have gotten tiny seat to where I want it to be. The pot will be going, but I'll, I'll be ready for another year off. You know? Yeah. I will admit I haven't, I haven't given it a lot of thought, but I, I think that your question is something I should consider. and. If I'm being honest, so we're about five years in now, right? Because this is 2023. 
uh, into really doubling down on MicroConf podcast and starting Tiny Seed. And if I'm honest, I bet that I will want to take a chunk of time. Three months, three months feels reasonable. So six months is like, oh, I'm burned out. I need to recover. Three months is like for me, plenty of time to be away from work. I could see doing that in the next few, next couple years before hmm. you know, next two to three years, if I have, if I plan it well. That would be the big kicker for me. Is like, can I step away for that long and have everything run? And I think that I bet I could do that today. Actually. It's, it's an interesting exercise. I think each of us should ask, but I bet I could, as long as we aren't doing, cause we do applications twice a year for the accelerator. As long as it's not during that month, I bet I could take uh, three months off mostly from work. I want to switch gears and talk about family life. You mentioned family in Costa Rica and, and, uh, and I'd be curious to know how you dealt with the wealth that you've created with your kids. I mean, you know, the worst nightmare in the world I think entrepreneurs have is is this idea that they they're creating entitled kids mm-hmm. who won't have uh, any grit and determination yeah. and the ability to kind of pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and yet they want to let their kids participate in some of the financial benefits of all the hard work and the sacrifice, yeah. and so trips to Costa Rica and others. You know, yeah. they want they want to do those things for the kids. So, how did you guys stick handle the money stuff with your kids? We have. Just ha- we've had a lot of very direct conversations with them about, hey kids, this is a weird thing to say, but you need to understand that we are rich. You are a rich kid. You are a wealthy. You are in a wealthy family. We didn't grow up that way, but you are. Know that. Understand. You have privilege. Here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to bail you out of everything with money. When you break the the iPod, you're going to buy a new iPod. Just because I have the money doesn't mean you do. So the kids got allowance. The kids get, you know, holiday gifts and such, but we've never, we will spend money on, um, if they want to play sports, sports are expensive. Both of them play instruments They play cello and violin, right? And so we do pay for lessons. We never bring that up as a, as a big deal. However, if a kid complains and says, I don't want to go to a lesson, we're like, great, it's $54. You can pay that out of your allowance, right? So we treat it. We treat our kids similar to how we were treated as kids, that money is important and it is a, I want them to understand it's scarce without having a scarcity mindset. There's a balance between those two. But you're absolutely right that I didn't go on trips to Europe and Costa Rica like my, uh, like my kids do. And we frankly talk to them about that. We say most people don't do this. So don't take it for granted. We also, the last thing I'll say is like, I, I bought multiple books. There's like rich debt. I'm not a huge fan of Kiyosaki, but Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Guide for Teens. I have walked through both of my, with, with oh, my okay. kids. And, that's cool. and there's another one that's like money mindset, five money mindsets for kids or something. Like I've walked through that to try to help them understand that money is a tool, not much more, you know? And um, I don't know. We'll see how they turn out. I think they're relatively grounded, but they've, de- yeah, they've definitely had an upbringing that's de- far cry from where we grew up. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the most challenging things, and and they, even as they grow into their twenties, and and it, it never really ends yeah. until uh, you work through it. So, um, what prompted you've you've just written a new book, and I can see how this perfectly fits into the entire ecosystem you're building. Um, the SaaS playbook really provides kind of a you know an action plan for SaaS founders. On, on how to build and successfully scale a SaaS uh, 
business. This is the second on the, so on the topic. Your first one was really how do you start it? Mm -hmm. And this one's really more on the kind of how do you scale it? How do you grow it mm -hmm. beyond uh, just a lifestyle business? What, what prompted you to want to write it? You know, what's funny is coming back to 2018, prior to that, I was always doing a bunch of stuff. I was starting software company and I had this other little side project and I had this microconf thing and I had this podcast and it was just disparate and I was being pulled in all these directions. In 2018, I realized, oh, as, as we've said, I had this realization for the rest of my life, until uh, I changed my mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to be going in this one direction, podcast, Tiny Seed, microconf They are all the same, right? They're all, they're all helping entrepreneurs. And my first book I wrote in 2010 and about two years ago, a friend of mine said, when are you going to write another book? And I said, never, because they're, too, they're just too painful. You've, you've done this three times, John. Yeah, I'm super yeah, impressed. Yeah. And, but he said, our space needs a, a book from someone who really knows what they're talking about. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Because I don't necessarily read all the books about SaaS and startups anymore. And he pointed out three examples that I, obviously I won't mention here, but he's like, this book is terrible and here's why. And this advice is bad and here's why. And he's like, there's, the people who are shipping, you know, the amazing founders, the Jason Cohens, Heaton Shahs, Dharma Shahs, they're too busy to write books for, for our crew. And so it's people who kind of haven't done it. And so that was him building the case for me to that. He said, we need a book in our space that people can point to. And I kind of took it as a weird, uh, it was a little bit of a burden on me because again, my mission is to help entrepreneurs to multiply the number of independent self-sustaining SaaS companies in the world. And I gave it a lot of thought because it's like, I don't really want to write another book. I don't enjoy the, I, I love having written. I just don't enjoy the act of writing. But over the next couple of months, he and I talked multiple times and pretty soon, you know how it goes then, John, like the table of contents just wrote itself for me. Like I sat down and wrote the whole table of contents in like less than an hour because you, you, everything's in my head, all the stuff I needed to write. So then I started the arduous process of doing it, but that was really the inception. And I'm very thankful is Ruben Gomez with BitSketch, uh, DocSketch, who I think in the book for that, but I don't think I would have done it without his encouragement. And it also, I then started floating it by other people that I knew and they were like, oh yeah, I would love to read a book that kind of encapsulates everything. Cause there's no one place that talks about basically non-venture track SaaS. Like how do you build a SaaS company without raising venture capital? And that was what I kind of wanted to you know, put a treatise, uh, you know, uh, down on paper. The book is called the SAS playbook. Correct. SAS playbook. And I would recommend everybody grab a copy. I've, I've, I've read it and got a lot out of it personally and, and think it's a great uh, resource for folks in this space. So. Thank you. Rob, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to share uh, your post-drip story. I think you're, as I said in the outset, a real uh, mentor and shining light for me. Uh, and I think I'm just so impressed with the life you built post drip and there's so much to be proud of. So I, I'm grateful for you taking the time and sharing your, uh, your story with our listeners. Thanks so much, John. It's been a pleasure. And there you have it for today's episode between Rob and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support the podcast, you can do so by either sharing this episode out with a friend or colleague or heading over to Apple Podcasts where there you'll have the chance to leave a rating and review. I've also added the link on how to leave a rating and review in our show notes page over at builttosell.com. And for more notes, everything referenced in today's episode, including the 18 questions to ask yourself on a founder's retreat, you can find all of that in our show notes page over at builttosell.com. 
com. Also, a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can head over to YouTube, type in at Built to Sell Radio, and there you'll be able to watch the full video interview of Rob and John today. If you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Lavataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. If you want to get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, be sure to head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. 